Hi guys, and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast, a geek's guide to the great campaigns and battles of the British Army. Our nation has lost many battles. A love of heroic defeat is a very British trait, whether it be in war or even sport. We do have a tendency to worship our gallant losers. But despite many setbacks over the centuries, it must be said that Britain hasn't lost many wars. We are a pig-headed nation, often guilty of arrogance, especially when facing non-European armies. But it must be said that we do learn quickly, mistakes are rectified, generals replaced, and few military defeats have been left unavenged. The Anglo-Zulu War of 1879 is a classic example of this. A crushing early defeat at Isandwana, some time spent licking our wounds and to reassess our tactics, followed by a huge injection of reinforcements and eventually a complete dismantling of the enemy, destroying their army and their society from root to branch. In today's episode of the Redcoat History Podcast, we examine the second invasion of Zululand, hear the stories of those involved and have a ringside seat as the great nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, the last of his line, is killed. We'll move forward deep into Zulu territory, burning down every homestead we find, and finally we will face the mass of the Zulu Impi one more time, outside of their capital, Ulundi. So stand to your horses and prepare to mount. It's time to advance yet again. April and May of 1879 saw the force under Lord Chelmsford grow exponentially, with fresh troops arriving almost daily from across the globe. For a taste of the atmosphere and what it was like to be deployed to South Africa, here's an excerpt from a book by Captain Montague of the 94th, whose unit had just received orders for South Africa. Late in February, we stood on parade for the last time, while the general of our brigade addressed to us a few words of Godspeed. The snow lay thick on the ground and the men beat a dismal tattoo with their feet as the words came across the ranks. He's quoting now. Let every bullet find its billet in a Zulu breast. You are leaving your sweethearts behind. Men, let each man's rifle henceforth be his sweetheart. Let him cherish it as he would the girl he has left behind him. End quote. The sentiment called for for good cheer. Then the band struck up and we marched off to the station. Never was greater enthusiasm shown than on the occasion of the reinforcements starting for Natal. At Southampton, the two trains conveying the regiment passed slowly through long lines of people, all shouting and cheering, the women waving handkerchiefs, and urging us on to go out and avenge our fallen soldiers. The dockyard was crammed. Even the vessels lying alongside the china on which we were to embark were filled with spectators. Windows of the warehouses commanding a view of the ship were occupied by parties of ladies, while the gates leading to the landing place were besieged by anxious crowds, all begging for admittance. So the afternoon wore away. The men were stowed below like so many sardines in a box. The officers snatched a minute now and again to consume bottles of champagne with their friends in the saloon. The old duke paid us a flying visit, and at last we cast off from the quay and steamed slowly past the dockhead. The crowds, there as elsewhere, unmindful of the bitter wind, cheered and waved their handkerchiefs, while the band on board played Old Lang Syne and the girl I left behind me, till the men could blow no longer. Then more leave-taking as the steam tender alongside blew her whistle, 
a rush to the gangway, and a few minutes after the order, full speed ahead, England was gone, more a thing of the past. Meanwhile, back in South Africa, Chelmsford had learnt from the failures of January, and now his two invading columns were, as Ian Knight calls them, powerful juggernauts. I'm actually recording this from a place called Umtunjaneni. I'm stood outside the museum. I decided it would be really fun to come and actually record this episode, or at least parts of it, in some of the places where things actually happened. So if you hear cocks crowing, horses neighing, remember that I'm actually in one of the historical locations. So let's, let's crack on and see how this goes. Every night, the columns were to lager up with their wagons, forming a defensive wall against the possibility of a Zulu attack. Also, forts, like the one where I'm stood at Mtonjaneni, would be constructed along the route of advance to defend the fragile supply lines. Chelmsford was under pressure to win this war quickly, so that he could shake off the legacy of the defeat at Isandwana before he was inevitably replaced by a new commander. The plan for the second invasion was based on two main thrusts into Zululand. It was thought that the two columns would force the Zulus to engage and stop them from launching their own attack into Natal. Pearson's old coastal column would be the basis of the newly named 1st Division, commanded by Major General Creelock, which was to advance up the coast. There was then the 2nd Division, which numbered about 5,000 men, mainly fresh troops and under the command of Major General Newdigate. They were supported by a new cavalry brigade, consisting of the 1st King's Dra Dragoon Guards and the 17th Lancers. And the plan was that this force would swing down from Dundee and head towards Alundi. Lord Chelmsford would accompany them, essentially superseding Newdigate in command. Alongside them were Evelyn Wood's veterans, who were now renamed the Flying Column. As Wood was one of the few officers who had been able to defeat the Zulus in battle, and as his men were now acclimatised, battle-hardened and confident, it seems like the correct decision to allow him an independent command of his own. His force numbered around 3,200 men. All in all, Lord Chelmsford now commanded 9,000 regular British infantry and 1,000 regular cavalry. On top of this were around 7,000 more local auxiliaries and support troops. It was a strong force and was expected to face up to around 25,000 Zulus. But those Zulus weren't the same confident army that had swept the British away as Andluana. They'd taken a severe battering at Kambula and Gungundlovu and their morale was low. King Hitzwayo's army wasn't a standing one, it was a citizen force and was never meant for long protracted campaigns. It was proving harder and harder for him to keep them motivated and fed. Before the invasion was able to really get going, the British army was struck with another disaster. It's a disaster that often gets more attention than its strategic significance warrants and that is the death of Louis Napoleon, the Prince Imperial of France. He was the last of Napoleon Bonaparte's bloodline, a celebrity of his day, a young, handsome, well-groomed man with dark hair and piercing eyes. After his father had been dethroned in 1870, the family came to England where Louis trained as a soldier, attending the Royal Military Academy at Woolwich. As he was foreign royalty, the military didn't wish for him to serve as a combatant, but inevitably strings were pulled and eventually he was allowed to travel south to take part in the war with the understanding that he would be an observer and wasn't to take part in combat. When he arrived in South Africa, crowds gathered to see him, officers wanted to serve with him, and commanders were keen to invite him for dinner. Evelyn Wood was one of them, and I think this small anecdote is very telling of the sort of man the prince was, 
Wood tells us in his book, The Prince accompanied Colonel Redvers Buller on some patrols, and on his return from one on the 21st of May I observed at dinner. Well, have you not been assegaied as yet? No, he replied, but while I have no wish to be killed, if it were to be I would rather fall by assegai than bullets, as that would show we were at close quarters. The Prince was clearly a bit of a fire-eater, out to prove himself worthy of his illustrious ancestor. Captain Molyneux, who was on Lord Chelmsford's staff, recalled in his memoirs a similar conversation. As we rode home that day, the Prince Imperial and I were walking our horses a little behind the rest, talking over all sorts of things, while half a mile away in all directions were scouting parties of irregulars. Some days before, when out with Colonel Harrison and Bettington's men, the Prince had gone straight for some Zulus on a hill, who luckily had bolted. Reverting to this, I asked him why he had risked his life when the death of one or even a dozen Zulus would not affect the success of the campaign. You are right, I suppose, he said, but I could not help it. I feel I must do something. The Prince found his niche on special duties attached to the Quartermaster General's department, where his solid military education came in useful, scouting out campsites and sketching the geography of the area. It was on one of these reconnaissance patrols that he was killed. On the morning of the 1st of June, as the second invasion commenced, Louis left camp with a small escort of six men of Bettington's troop of the Natal Horse, a Zulu guide and Lieutenant Carey of the 98th Prince of Wales Regiment, who should technically have been in charge. But, as is often the way with many men of high birth and expensive schooling, Louis decided that despite military protocol he would be the boss and immediately began giving orders. His first was not to wait for the extra Basutu cavalry who were late meeting them. Instead, they decided to go and save time. It was the first of a number of poor decisions that day. In the mid-afternoon, the patrol arrived at a small Zulu village that appeared to be deserted. The men made coffee and the prince laid down to relax. The ground offered plenty of cover for the enemy. Waist-high grass covered much of the countryside, and yet no sentries were posted. I think you can see where this is going. Corporal Grubb an old Africa hand who spoke Zulu, felt uneasy and suggested that the group should move off. But as a lowly NCO, doesn't help having the name Grubb probably, his advice was ignored. Shortly afterwards, the friendly Zulu who accompanied the patrol spotted enemy warriors closing in and the alarm was raised. But it was too late. A volley of rifle fire pinged amongst the dismounted cavalrymen. The prince gave the order to mount. Some managed to do so but it became every man for themselves as the enemy closed in. The prince struggled to get into his saddle, and then the straps broke and he fell to the ground. As the Zulus rushed in, he pulled his sword, an heirloom that had once belonged to Napoleon himself, and prepared to fight. An assegai struck him in the leg, and then another in the chest. Suddenly the enemy were upon him, and he was quickly finished off. Lieutenant Carey was widely blamed for the debacle. After all, he was meant to have been in charge. Not only should the patrol not have been so deep in enemy territory, but their escort was not sufficient, and when the shooting started, nobody stopped to rally the men and come to the aid of the prince. It was an embarrassment for the army and caused a major diplomatic stir with the French. As Ron Locke and Peter Quantrill say in their book Zulu Vanquished, had Louis lived, there existed the possibility that one day he might become emperor of France, a development that would have undoubtedly have changed the history of Europe. It's interesting to contemplate also that Louis, the great-nephew of Napoleon, was slain by the warriors of King Hetzwayo, the nephew of King Shaka, himself sometimes called the Black Napoleon of Africa.
The next day, our old friend Captain Molyneux, who we're going to hear a lot of in this episode, accompanied the soldiers sent to find the Prince Imperial's body. He recalled, The march was very slow and with much trumpeting. After about an hour of it, our little party rode ahead on its own account and, guided by a trooper who had been with the Prince, soon reached the kraal. The scouts of the flying column had now joined us and we searched the ground together. The bodies of the two men of the Natal horse were soon found, and then Captain Cochrane, 32nd Light Infantry, at that time commanding the troop of Natal Basutus, called the attention of Scott and myself to another body at the bottom of a donga, which on being reached was discovered to be that we were in search of. It lay about 200 yards northeast of the kraal. It was stripped, with the exception of a gold chain with medallions attached, which was still around the neck. The sword, revolver, helmet and clothes were gone. But in the grass we discovered his spurs with straps attached, and one sock marked N. His sword and boots were recovered later. The body had seventeen wounds, all of them in the front, and the marks on the ground and on the spur we found indicated a desperate resistance. As soon as the cavalry arrived, a stretcher was made with lances and horse blankets, and the body carried from the donga up the hill homewards, by Major General Marshall, Captain Stewart, Colonel Drury Lowe, and three officers of the 17th Lancers, Scott Bartle Freer and myself, with M. Deliage, correspondent of the Figaro, who expressed a wish to assist, which was immediately granted. It was not long before we met the ambulance in which the body was then laid and escorted back to camp by officers' parties of the Dragoon Guards and Lancers. The bit about all the wounds being in the front seems to be a bit of a myth. It seems that there were stab wounds to the back, but in fairness to Louis, they were most likely caused after his death as the attacking party wanted to wet their spears with his blood. The beauty of recording this outdoors are these bird sounds. Can you hear them? I'm not sure what bird that is, but it's a sound I'm sure the British soldiers here in Zululand quickly became familiar with. Anyway, carrying on with the story. The spot where Prince Louis fell in Zululand is marked by a cross bearing the following inscription. This cross is erected by Queen Victoria in affectionate remembrance of Napoleon Eugene Louis Jean Joseph, Prince Imperial, to mark the spot where, while assisting in a reconnaissance with the British troops on the 1st of June 1879, he was attacked by a party of Zulus and fell with his face to the foe. Shortly after the prince's death, a court-martial found Carey guilty of, quote-unquote, misbehaving before the enemy, essentially cowardice. But his conviction was later overturned and he was allowed to return back to his regiment. He stayed in the army but died four years later in Karachi, which is now part of modern-day Pakistan. I can't help but wonder how difficult it must have been for him to return to his unit after the death of the prince. I suspect his welcome in the mess would have been somewhat subdued. Though I'm also told that many saw him as a scapegoat for the death and thought that the prince brought it on himself with his gung-ho attitude. So, mixed feelings. By the 6th of June, the invading columns were advancing towards Alundi, the Zulu capital. The 2nd Division stopped for the night and built a small earthwork called Fort Nudigate, where a combination of green troops and taut nerves saw another embarrassment. Captain Molyneux explains. This night, the 6th, was a lively one in our lager. Some groups of natives were posted with the outlying pickets, and one of these began firing at about 8 o'clock, whereupon the pickets retired into the unfinished forts, 
The tents outside the trench and lager were struck and the men fell in to resist an attack. Now the camp kettles had been left on their tripods at the usual cooking places on the outer side of the tents, and presumably this deceived the men of one regiment, for they gave them a warm independent fire, and even the artillery assisted with two rounds of case. Horses and oxen galloped around the interior like mad things. All who were not firing shouted to all those who were to cease, and the din was tremendous. When quiet was restored, it was found that the enemy consisted of a stray ox, that two sergeants and three men of the outpost had been hit, and that all the camp kettles, tents and kit left outside one face were perforated. Fort Nudigate got the slang name of Fort Funk, and one regiment did most of its cooking in mess tins afterwards. This was rather a disreputable, disreputable affair, as showing what exaggerated ideas the new troops from home had of their foes, and how easily a panic increases at night. As an interesting aside to that, a small picket of Royal Engineers found themselves outside the entrenchment and forced to take cover. Their senior officer was none other than recently promoted Major Chard, the hero of Rourke's Drift. What a tragic end it might have been for him to be shot by panicking men of his own army. The subsequent advance was slow going, but by the 26th of June Lord Chelmsford's troops were within striking distance of the Zulu capital. A large Zulu force was now spotted, and so the column built a strong base at Umtonjaneni, where I'm stood now, from which to anchor their final assault. I would describe the scene for you, but it's very foggy and rainy, and I can't actually see anything, which is probably similar to why the troops would get so, so scared often, because they couldn't see anything because of the, th the fog and drizzle. It's rather annoying for me, actually, because it hasn't rained that I've seen in South Africa for four or five months. So typical that the day I come for a battlefield tour, it's raining cats and dogs and foggy. All right, back to the story. And King Hitzweil, realising that his military were now massively outgunned, tried to negotiate, sending men into the British lager with gifts. But by now it was too late. Chelmsford could sense victory and wasn't going to lose out on the chance to crush his enemy and recover his legacy, improve his legacy, before his recently named successor, Lord Wolseley, arrived to take command. At 8.45am on Monday the 30th of June, the flying column led the British force out of this camp, followed by the 2nd Division. It was about 5,500 men in total. They travelled light with no tents and rations for just 10 days. It was do or die. The final showdown was now inevitable. Okay, so now I've moved location. I'm now right on the edge of a Lundy. I'm walking up a steep undulating mud road towards Fort Nolela. I'm right next door to the James Humalo Agricultural College, which I'm told is the position where the British lagered before the battle, but we're gonna to get to that. Let me keep walking and then I'll pick up the story. Okay, I finally reached the top of the hill, which is a sort of a stone fort, very small, probably 15 to 20 meters across and it's called Fort Nolela and I'm going to mention it in the in the story in a minute but it's a great spot to stop and to look over the crossing of the Umfalosi River which the British reached on the 1st of July. When the British got here they could see the Zulu army drilling in the plains beyond towards Ondini which is the name of the King's Kraal in Olundi. They realized though that the Zulus weren't forming to attack. As Evelyn Wood says in his autobiography had the Zulus shown the initiative and audacity which characterised them earlier in the war, they might have inflicted severe loss upon us. 
if they had not indeed destroyed a portion of the force. So obviously he was nervous that while the British, before they were able to lager at this position, they could have been attacked. But the Zulus, not the army they were earlier in the war, chose not to attack them. That night, though, the 2nd Division, as you'll recall, the Greener troops, terrified by the Zulu chants, had another major scare. Yet again, Captain Molyneux was there. He says, That night was a noisy one in both lagers. In that of the 2nd Division, an officer of the native contingent was fired at by a sentry when visiting his pickets. In a minute, the whole of our natives outside made a wild rush at the abatis and lager, and it says much for the discipline of the soldiers opposite them that they were not shot down and bayoneted, as occurred near Gungundlovu. He's referring to an incident where um, a number of John Dunn's men were killed. The soldiers were driven back by the rush to the wagons, and the natives came clean over, both into the interior. Headquarters were in bivouac just inside the wagons, and we were all lying about in various positions when the black avalanche came down. For a few minutes we could not tell what was up, and so the jumpers were given blows from sticks and fists, instead of cuts from swords and shots from pistols. A burly native landed full on the adjutant general's prostate form. I can imagine he was uh, not very happy with that. The following day, though, the defences were improved and a fort, this one where I'm standing, Fort Nolela, was built. As the British worked on the drift down below, the Zulus sent marksmen to harass them. And over the next 24 hours, the Zulus continued to take potshots at the British, including the watering parties and those trying to wash. It was decided that the ever-dependable local horseman under Colonel Buller would cross the river and push the Zulus back, while at the same time wrecking the route the column would take to Alundi, to Undini, the King's Kraal, and choose the best position for them to make a stand if attacked en route. By the way, for a map of the area, and to see a video of the upcoming battle, please visit redcoathistory.com. That will give you a good idea of the geography and the layout. On the afternoon of the 3rd of July 1879, with almost the entire camp turned out to watch, Buller and his 500 men crossed the river. They quickly cleared the Zulu sharpshooters from the bank. Shortly afterwards, they spotted a herd of goats being led away through the long grass towards Kral Nodwengu and decided to follow them. But it was a trap. About 4,000 Zulus under the command of Zibebuka Mapita had concealed themselves in the undulating terrain and were waiting to strike. Captain Molyneux, back at the lager, watched the action that followed and he explains, From the wagons at the highest point of the lager we could see with our glasses most of what was going on. When Buller reached the Umbalani stream, a large force of Zulus appeared suddenly in front of him, while at the same time other large forces rose out of the valleys on his right and his left. It looked as if he must be cut off, or would at least have to fight his way through, as the Zulu wings were closing behind him. It was an exciting moment, and right glad we were to see him retiring. Two nine-pounders were got into position, and some infantry sent to the drift to cover his retreat. Some of his, some of his men left on the hill behind checked the pursuit of the Zulus. The correspondent of the Natal Witness newspaper was also present, and he said, We'd gone 500 yards in this direction. I'm not sure why he's got a working class accent, but let's roll with it. When I heard Colonel Buller shout out to his men to halt, and then followed the ominous order to retire. Just then I saw a long line of Zulus rise from the grass, but 200 yards ahead and turned my horse in an instant. 
No sooner was I turned when I saw the second line of Zulus at right angles to the first, coming up on our right. Buller and his men had been lucky. The ambush by the Mhapo regiment had been well planned and executed. Only Buller's instinct that the Zulu herdsmen they were following were retiring too slowly to be genuine had saved the patrol from disaster. The running battle that followed across the Malabatini plain was a hairy one, proven by the fact that three VCs were won. Lord Beresford, ADC, and also Captain Darcy and Sergeant O'Toole of the Frontier Light Horse were all awarded the medal after attempting to rescue comrades who had lost their horses as the Zulus bore down on them. Darcy's citation read, on the 3rd of July, 1879, at Olundi, South Africa, during a reconnaissance, Captain Darcy went to the rescue of a trooper of the Frontier Light Horse, who had fallen from his horse as the troops were retiring. The captain waited for the trooper to mount behind him, although the enemy were quite close, but the horse kicked them both off. Captain Darcy was hurt by the fall and quite alone, but he still tried to lift the trooper who was stunned onto the horse and only mounted and rode off when he was completely exhausted. Sergeant Major Kambule, one of the blacks of the native horse, was also noted for his bravery and was awarded the silver medal for distinguished conduct in the field. Given the racist attitudes of the day, I'm sure his bravery was also worthy of a VC. Buller's fight was a close-run thing, but Evelyn Wood, commander of the flying column, was pleased with the results of this mounted reconnaissance and felt that the information gained about the best place to fight the coming battle was well worth the loss. Everything was now ready for the British advance the following day. In his memoir, Wood recalled, That afternoon, Lord Chelmsford told me that he wished the flying column to lead the attack. Parading the column, I said, Now, my men, we've done with lagering and we're going to meet the Zulus in the open. You will remember how on the 24th of January I read out to you the news of the disaster at Isandwana. So I expect that you will today believe that anything I tell you is, to the best of my judgment, correct. I cannot promise that you will all be alive tomorrow evening, but if you remain steady and wait for the word of the officers before delivering your fire, I promise you that at sundown there will be no Zulus within reach of our mounted men and that you will not see any from an early hour in the day. That night, in the lager and at Fort Nalela where I am now, a hundred rounds of ammunition was issued to each man and the screws on the ammunition boxes loosened. The British tried to rest, but the noise of the Zulu war chant called Senzangakona, which I believe was the name of Shaka Zulu's dad, was both fascinating and terrifying and made sleep difficult. Instead, the men lay up here shivering, fully dressed, under their blankets and greatcoats, wondering what would happen in the morning. Our trusty correspondent, Captain Molyneux, describes the scene the following day. We were up next morning at five to find everything shrouded in a thick white mist. Five companies of the 1st Battalion, 24th, one company of Royal Engineers with detachments from other corps, some 600 men in all, were left to defend the lager under Colonel Belairs, Deputy Adjutant General. At six, the rest of the force advanced to the Umfalozi. The infantry with the guns were to follow in a rectangle, natives, ammunition and tool carts and bear a company in the centre, and the 17th Lancers were to bring up the rear. We were all across the river by seven and at half past eight had reached the knoll selected by Buller on the previous day for our position. The chief now took personal command of the united force, wheeled the rectangle half right so as to face Olundi Kral, halted it, faced the men outwards and ordered the ranks to be dressed and the ammunition carts to be placed handy and opened. Wood proposed to entrench, but the chief refused. No, he said, 
They will be satisfied if we beat them fairly in the open. We've been called ant bears long enough. So I'm now stood on a windy open plain about a 10 minute drive northeast of the crossing point at the Umfalozi River. This is the battlefield of Alundi. And I'm stood in the entrance to the beautiful sandstone monument that's built here, right in the middle of the old British square. There's a small graveyard where 13 British casualties are buried, although one of them was subsequently removed. But we'll get on to that later. I just wanted to give you a taste of the location where I'm reading the rest of today's podcast from. It's a little bit windy as I record this, and you might even hear a little bit of an echo because I'm stood by the stairs leading into the memorial. Okay, so I'm now stood right in the middle of what would have been the British Square on the morning of the 4th of July. It was, as Molyneux points out, more like a rectangle, about 150 yards by 270 yards, which for those of you like me who grew up using metres, that's 137 metres by about 247 metres. A fence now surrounds the position, and although I haven't paced it out, it looks like the fence more or less corresponds to the right dimensions. It's windy here and it's getting cold as I sit here. It's five past three in the afternoon and it's been a grey, miserable day all day. On the long north side of the square that morning were eight companies of the 90th Light Infantry, alongside four companies of the 94th. To their left, i.e. the west face of the position, were two more companies of the 94th, two companies of the 2nd Battalion, 21st Royal Scots Fusiliers. And on the long south side, facing towards Nodwengu Kral, were four companies of the 58th and eight companies of the 1st Battalion, 13th Regiment. On the east or front, facing Alundi, in the position of honour, were five companies of the 80th, under our old friend Major Tucker, who you may remember from episode 5, as he was commanding at Lüneburg when the Battle of Ntombe Drift happened. Also facing towards Alundi, as this is where the main attack was expected, were the Gatling guns, two of them under Major J.F. Owen, while the artillery were positioned at strategic points all around the position. Inside the square were the NNC and the engineers, shortly to be joined by the cavalry once they were called in for the battle. In total, the British force numbered a little over 5,000 men and represented the most firepower that had ever been gathered in southern Africa. Just to give you an idea, each side, each side of this square, the infantry were four deep. That gives you a sense of how much firepower they must have been able to bring to bear. More or less where I'm sat now, the colours were blowing in the breeze, and the band of the 1st 13th kept up the ardour of the men with a medley of tunes as they awaited the Zulu attack. It was like something out of the Napoleonic era. Bayonets were fixed and glittered in the early morning sun as they waited. Just as an aside here, by the way, you may have noticed that the men of the 1st 24th were left to man the fort at Fort Nolela. But didn't, get, didn't they get wiped out, I hear you say? Yes, but after the massacre at Isandlwana, the battalion was reconstituted with fresh recruits from the depot and volunteers from across many different regiments of the army. But the fact was that they were not a hardened battalion of old campaigners, and it was decided that they just weren't reliable enough to take part in the coming battle. You can't just take a random group of men, throw them together and expect them to perform well. It was very sad though, because it meant they would miss out on the revenge that they were so desperate to get for Isandlwana. When the Zulus saw the British force marching into the open, they were ecstatic. Finally, they hoped they would get their fair fight in the open that they had been longing for. 
there was now no doubt that they would attack exactly as Lord Chelmsford had hoped. No more could the Zulus call the British ant bears, saying they hide behind their lager and forts. Now they were out in the open and the Zulus really thought this was their chance to beat them. It's rush hour here by the square now, so apologies for any traffic noise coming past. At around half past eight in the morning, the Zulu columns approached. They were supported by a cloud of skirmishers. Buller and his cavalry engaged them, firing and manoeuvring as they slowly withdrew back towards the square. In the book, The Story of the Zulu Campaign by Captains Ash and Wyatt Edgill, who was with the 17th Lancers and died at Alundi, it says... Nothing could be finer than the way in which Buller and Shepston retired, bringing the Zulu columns and their horns under the deadly hail of our Gatlings and Martinis. Now thought the Zulus was the time for their grand attack. Still the line of white shields came roaring on like the big white billows that roll onto and break into the foam upon the South Africa shore. The ridges on the front and left were now swarming with Zulus. Fierce, stern and terrible. And with fiendish, maniacal shouts, they swept over the soft and springy felt to be shattered, bloody and broken in their pride by the leaden tempest that now whistled from all sides of the square. Ah! Molyneux continues the story. He says, The Zulus did not keep us waiting long. The ranks were scarcely dressed before our mounted men on the right commenced firing at the back of Nodwengu Kral and almost immediately it was taken up all along the line of scouts. Buller and Drury Lowe brought in the irregulars and the 17th Lancers at a gallop, so as to clear the infantry front. Volleys by companies, was the order when the square was closed again. The chief refused to dis dismount, so all staff officers, including Newdigates and Woods, remained on horseback throughout the action. A very fine view we had of the whole battle. Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Harness of the Royal Artillery later recorded of the Zulus, They advance in beautiful order, covered by skirmishers, apparently in one long continuous line about four deep, with intervals between the regiments. It is evidently their objective to surround us with their largest force in the rear to cut off our retreat. It was a grand sight. Right, I've just found a bit more shelter from the wind, so I'm hoping the rest of the battle description is a little bit less windy. Molyneux picks up the story. The Zulus had remained in the horseshoe formation of the previous day, and now, joining the two horns, they came with a tremendous rush at our rear face. There was a patch of bush and long grass 30 yards off, behind which the enemy were assembling. So the chief brought the 5th Company Royal Engineers up behind the 21st Regiment to help them in case of need but company volleys and case from two nine-pounders scattered the Zulus at this point and stopped a closer rush. It had been a brave opening gambit by the Zulu left horn, which included the very experienced Uwe and Ingobamakosi regiments. They used the terrain perfectly to get as close as possible towards the rear corner of the square. Obviously the corners of the square are always the most vulnerable to attack as they're, they're not able to bring as much firepower to bear, so it is the obvious target. It seemed touch and go for a short while as the Zulus with their cries of Usutu came streaming forward. Chelmsford was shaken as he shouted, Men, fire faster! Can you not fire faster? Officers drew their swords, ready for a hand-to-hand -hand fight, but the heavy fire eventually broke the Zulu resolve and the weight of the attack began to shift. 
the British also began to take casualties. But as we've mentioned so many times before on this podcast, the Zulus' inability to use their sights correctly meant many of their bullets went high, missing their targets. In their excellent book, Victoria's Harvest, David Truesdale and John Young refer to Alundi as less like a battle and more like a controlled slaughter. And to be fair, that assessment seems spot on. Ash and Wyatt Edgehill continue the story. Meanwhile, the front attack had again developed, and here the gallant 80th were placed at a certain disadvantage. That awkward dip in their front enabled the Zulus to make their formation for attack out of sight and out of fire, so that Major Tucker's men had to reserve their fire until the tops of the enemy's heads were seen above the mound. But the 80th behaved so coolly and so steadily that the front attack at length slackened and the Zulu line wavered and finally ceased to fire. To be fair, it also probably helped the 80th that they had Gatling guns and artillery alongside them. Though it has to be said that the pair of Gatling guns used during the battle did manage to jam six times during the fight because the bolts slipped out and were hard to find in the long grass around them. It was now around 9.30am, time for the cavalry to attack and rout what was left of the Zulu Impi. Chelmsford called to Drury Low, Go at them, Colonel, but don't pursue too far! The infantry on the left side of the square opened up gaps and the 17th Lancers emerged for the work that they loved. The commands rang out across the plain, Trot! Form squadrons! Form line! Gallop! Charge! The blue and white clad cavalrymen dipped their steel-topped bamboo lances and sped towards the Zulus. A force of the enemy armed with rifles and muskets were hidden by the long grass and emerged to fire a volley on the charging horsemen. Some were killed, including Captain Wyatt Edgehill, the co-author of one of the books we've just been quoting. Major Ash says that his men, almost maddened when they saw him fall, spurred more furiously on to take immediate and bloody vengeance. Molyneux record the ensuing shock when horse met foot could even be heard by us. The Zulus broken fled, followed fast by the lancers, but some rallied on the rocky hills to the northwest, where the cavalry could not follow, and they were dispersed by shrapnel shells. The lance pennons were a sight that night, there was not one that had not done its work. Buller's mounted men, who had left the square after the lancers, dispersed several other parties of the enemy, and within an hour there was not a Zulu to be seen. The officers congratulated Lord Chelmsford and the men cheered, Woo! some throwing their cork helmets into the air, hurrah! There were just two officers and ten men killed in the battle. Another officer later died of wounds and 69 men were wounded. The dead were buried in their uniforms on the battlefield. I've just looked at the graveyard actually and, and there's 13 graves there which a couple of unknown Natal native horsemen and why Edgehill was actually dug up and removed and his body reinterred back in the UK later on. The Zulu casualties as usual were much higher but also difficult to know exactly. It's thought that around 1500 Zulu warriors were killed throughout the day, about 10% of those involved in the battle. Yet again they'd paid a heavy price for their bravery in a battle that barely lasted an hour. With the Zulu Impi finally destroyed, the war was now a mopping up operation. A few chiefs tried to continue the war, but on the 28th of August, Etwayo himself was finally captured, handing himself over to Major Richard Martyr of the 1st King's Dragoon Guards. I have trouble saying that, King's Dragoon Guards. The British then began their tried and trusted imperial policy of divide and rule. 
Zululand was broken up with a number of chiefs, including John Dunn, sharing power between them. Etwayo survived his imprisonment in Cape Town and even travelled to London and met Queen Victoria. In fact, he was treated as a celebrity in England where large crowds gathered to see him. But Europe wasn't for him, probably due to the weather, I don't blame him, and eventually he returned home to Zululand, only to die shortly afterwards with his country still plagued by civil war. Zululand is now a district in the province of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. It's a quiet rural location dotted with villages and small towns. But the Zulu people are still a force in South Africa. The language is the country's lingua franca amongst much of the black population. The last president, Jacob Zuma, was a Zulu. And Zulu people still hold their heads high and are proud of their warrior traditions, as they should be. They were truly a worthy foe and one that many British Army regiments still remember with respect and perhaps even a little fear. So let's quickly wrap up this episode actually by talking about total casualties. As we finish the narrative of the Anglo-Zulu War, I want to talk about dead and wounded just briefly. So according to official records, a total of 76 officers and 1,007 British and colonial troops were killed in action during the war and 37 officers and 206 men wounded. I guess those numbers are so high of the dead to wounded because of Vizandwana where wounded people were just killed. Nobody was being taken prisoner. At least 604 African auxiliaries were killed fighting for the British, so I think that's on top of the previous number. A figure that is probably significantly underestimated. A further 17 officers and 330 men died of disease during the war and throughout 1879 a total of 99 officers and 1,286 men were invalided from the command for causes incidental to the campaign. So in other words, they were sent home because they were too sick to carry on. Now this is all from the foreword actually of a really good book, a review of the South African campaign, uh, edited by Adrian Greaves and Ian Knight. It's basically biographical details of most of the officers who were killed. Zulu losses throughout the war are harder to estimate but are definitely in excess of 8,000 men, which when you think they started the war with, I think we said around 40,000 potential combatives, that's pretty heavy casualty figures. Well guys, on that sad note, that pretty much wraps up the narrative portion of season one of the Redcoat History podcast, the Anglo-Zulu War. But I am hoping to do a few more bonus episodes about the Anglo-Zulu War. I'm just trying to set up some interviews with experts so we can talk about specific elements of the war. So if you know anybody, actually personally know them, such as authors or researchers who are covering this, and you think they might be tech-savvy enough to have Skype and be willing to do an interview, please do send me their details via social media. You can find me, I'm at Redcoat History, all one word, both on Twitter and Instagram. I'm also on YouTube, just search for the Redcoat History YouTube channel, you'll find it. In the meantime, I'm also busy planning season two. I'm still a little bit torn what to do. I really want to do the Napoleonic Wars and the French Revolutionary Era, but that's going to be a lot of work. So I think in the meantime, I'd like to just do a quick season, maybe one, possibly two episodes, on the first Anglo-Boer War, which took place not long after the Anglo-Zulu War and saw the British take a bit of a hammering, to be honest. Anyway, guys, whatever we do, it'll be stories about legendary figures within the British military, and I can't wait to share them with you. <laughs>